Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out... Live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older, 18 and older in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. And welcome to Group Chat, and welcome to the 2023 NBA postseason. I am Justin Barrier. Joining me, the only hymns that I will ever recognize, Rob Mahoney, Big Waz. What's up, guys? I just, in this moment, I just realized that hymns isn't a sponsor of this pod. <laughs> Yet, you know? <laughs> Salute. The day, the day is young. Oh, man, if you were on Twitter yesterday, that's all you saw. Donovan Mitchell was him. The Aaron Fox was him. The Beam was him. Rob Mahoney, always him in my heart. So uh, I'll take that. Strap in. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of hymns over the next couple of weeks here. Have we not run like played out that string already? Him is his legit still a thing. Yeah, no, nah, I mean, but, you know, you got to add the the sort of flair to it. Him with sure. Chalamet. Or- of course. You know, him Hardaway. You know, you got to uh, actually start calling guys different hymn names um, just to make it more, you know, add some pizzazz to it. Yeah, we'll do our best here. Uh, so we are coming off of a raucous first day of NBA postseason basketball. Four games on Saturday. We're going to break them all down. Uh, we're going to focus, since we're recording this on Sunday morning, we're going to focus on the top line takeaways from each game. Uh, before we begin, gentlemen, Rob, are you feeling limber enough for this podcast? I know yesterday it was difficult for you. Not nearly, you know? It's it's tough, the work we do, but somebody's got to do it. So I, I think we are we are putting in the labor for our listeners. We're logging that couch time. 
I, I hope they really appreciate what we're bringing to the table today. Yeah, people can't see this right now, but me and Rob are wearing hard hats. And we've also, we're also wearing that belt thing that you wear across your back and stomach to oh. keep your back straight when you're yep. lifting stuff. We're rocking, both of us are rocking that because we work hard on this thing. Just mm. slathered up in icy hot, you know. It's a, today, <laughs> today's the, the recoup day. So hopefully we can kind of get things moving here and then we'll be limber by the time the Sunday games start. All right, we'll do our best. Uh, let's start from the bottom up. So let's start with the last game on Saturday's docket. That was Kings 126, Warriors 123. Um, Rob, I, maybe you should start us off here because I feel like I'm just going to default to grunts and and tongues like a, a, a ultimate warrior monologue uh, <laughs> because I don't really know what to make of this game. I'm still catching my breath. So what is the takeaway from, from this one for you? I think the takeaway is Golden State needs to treat game two like it's game five. Like there is no margin for error in this series. I know that the Warriors instinctively and culturally want to carry themselves like champions and like defending champions, which they obviously are. I don't think this version of the team can live up to that. And we saw that just in some of like the minutes distribution stuff. Obviously, the Warriors came to play in this game. But I think it's telling that they got good performances out of almost every role player on the roster. Andrew Wiggins looked as good as you could possibly expect after his long layoff. And they just got beat. And it's going to come down to, like, if you're not willing to play Steph Curry more than 37 minutes and get blown out in the 11 minutes he doesn't play, I think you might lose. So I I think the Warriors need to kind of come to game two with a heightened sense of urgency relative to where they would normally try to. Like, this is not the time to gauge yourself and like keep yourself for a long playoff run. These are, these are desperate games already. Yeah. And I think Fox is somebody who they have to treat with the deference that you show a superstar. And by deference, I just mean that you take them seriously. Uh, They have to divert uh, extra resources into containing that guy. Cause (laughs) look, the, the Clay Thompson where he damn near shook him out of his freaking shoes and drew that file, uh, they don't have a lot of guys who can deal with this dude in the one-on-one. Um, and he's so, he's feeling so confident in his mid-range right now. And so when they give him space, he's just pulling up and firing with all the confidence. And so I think they have to realize now that like De'Aaron Fox is a true star player that needs to get true, true star treatment from their defense as a collective, right? It's not going to just be, oh, we put Wiggins on them. Oh, we put Peyton on them. Oh, we put whoever on them. And it's just going to be fine. Like, they have to put some, build in some tweaks uh, to how they cover that guy. Um, That, to me, that's the main thing that I took away from game one because it's not, you know, he scored the 38 points. And, you know, there's no, there's no, like, stat, like, PER or VORP for confidence. But... The moment didn't look big enough. I'm too big for that dude. He looked comfortable as hell down the stretch of that game. And that, that truly blew me away and impressed me. I mean, I, I like Corp. Confidence over replacement player. Like Mal- Malik <laughs> Monk doing... through the roof. Honestly, oh Kevon goodness. Looney was flexing in this game. Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of Corp going on in this series in general. Shouts to my man, Tim McMahon. He actually coined the phrase, um, I think it's scientific, uh, cojones factor. So mm. the cojones factor was really, really high uh, for those two brothers in, in this game. 
Yeah, it's a big one at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Um, so if you, if you like follow the NBA, you probably know the beats of this game by now. I mean, it is crazy just what the, the Kings did in the second quarter. 29 points from Fox. Uh, overall, Monk had 32. I mean, I, I don't know if the, the crowd helped it. Probably one of the best playoff crowds I've seen in a while. But you guys are right. It just seemed like they lived up to the moment in a way that I, I don't think a lot of people were expecting. I think a lot of first-time playoff performances... I mean, this was Fox's first NBA playoff game. He had the second most points ever, ever in a playoff debut. Luka Doncic uh, was number one there. I guess my question, Rob, is like, how much can they carry that over? Like, one, they'll have home court advantage, so maybe they'll be buoyed by that. But like, do we think that was a product of matchups and maybe the Warriors not having the wing defense, uh, especially with Wiggins kind of working his way back into it? Or do we think this is repeatable and this might be the story of the series? I think it's repeatable. Like, this is who the Kings are offensively and really who they are defensively, too, to be honest. Like, I thought De'Aaron Fox put in a lot of really good work defensively to try to at least make Steph's life difficult in some critical stretches. But overall, they're going to give up a lot of points. The question is, is Sacramento going to be able to score? And I think they can score like this. The formula is not always going to be exactly this of, you know, De'Aaron Fox going for damn near 40. as And Malik Monk, too, another superlative. I, I believe he had the highest point total in a playoff debut for a reserve ever 32 points just absolutely balled out got to the free throw line whenever he wanted and that's something that the Warriors do sometimes like they do get a little foul prone a little handsy they're so reliant in some cases in some lineups on having for example Draymond Green for rim protection that if he's a little too far out like out of position if he's a little too far out of place you can have a free throw parade. And so as long as they have guys who are putting pressure on the rim the way Monk was in game one, I think Sacramento is a really good chance. And Fox, of course, is doing that too. Like those two guys, that tag team works so effectively. And I think they are going to buy time, hopefully, for someone like Sabonis to come along a little bit stronger. He had a real trouble finishing, mm, um, especially against Looney. He's he's in a nightmare matchup for him, honestly. Uh, between with Luna or with Draymond? Both of them. Between yeah. the two of those guys, Sabonis is not going to be able to get his stuff off. And this is not just me doing my normal Sabonis pylon. <laughs> I just I honestly think these guys are bad. He can't push them around, which is part of his strength. Like you can't put, you know, weak people on him. You have to be strong yep. as an ox to stop this guy from getting to your spots. He just happens to be going up against two of the strongest dudes. Uh, for their position in the league, right? And that that's going to be a problem there. They're pushing him off of his spot, and I don't know that that improves. Maybe he gets to the point where he's able to better draw fouls with the contact. Um, you know, maybe maybe that'll be his salvation, but this is a tough, tough, tough matchup for him. Waz, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert. He's not gonna get fouls with the contact. I don't know what it is about Domas Sabonis. That guy gets a rough whistle. Like yeah. he, there's especially on the like short roll, he catches at the free throw line and he's like going in hard to the rim. I feel like Sabonis gets hammered a lot. He does, and they just, but he's initiating a lot of that contact. And I think that's where the disconnect comes from with the referees. It's like, well, you're running into these guys. Like, you know, so I understand that. Another thing that I want to highlight just on the Warriors side, uh, just more, um, you know, just thought provoking analysis on my part. Steph Curry is freaking insane. (laughs) Like in the fourth quarter, dude, every time he had the ball, I just knew he was going to score. 
And he's doing it every single way where, you know, his old teammate Harry Barnes gets a switch on him. And he just absolutely cooks him for a step back three that doesn't even touch rim at all. Some of his drives where, you know, it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You get cooked like Harry Barnes on the step back, so you try to play up on him. And then Steph just blows by you for a beautiful finger roll layup. Um, And then, of course, he's one of the most willing passers we've ever seen whenever they try to put two on the ball. And he's getting it out quick. Uh, Warriors playing four and three. It's just... He He's looked as he looked as good as he's ever looked last night. I was I was blown away by Steph for real. I mean, he almost won the game on a one-footed floater three from, from the top of the key, I, which I nuts. thought was going in. By the way, yeah, I think as I think you most should. Did. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Marcus Thompson had this stat last night. Uh, the Kings went on a twenty-three and eleven run in the four minutes and 58 seconds that Curry was on the bench between the third and the fourth. I think as good as Steph is, those minutes without him, I think are going to be pretty dicey as they typically are. Um, I, I guess that's the question, Rob. Is Are they going to have enough in some of these later games to make up for that? Or is this you just got to ride the lightning with like whatever non-Steph minutes you can put together? That's kind of what I'm saying. Like this team isn't good enough to do anything but ride the lightning. Like you have to play Steph a lot. I know Draymond has played big minutes all year. You have to play him a lot. Like, I thought he was great in this game. Yeah. But you need him. You need him for those backdoor cuts to be able to hit like hit those passes. You obviously need him for everything he brings to the table defensively. You need him for an occasional <laughs> body slam, you know, and to yeah. sit on a guy now and again. He gave Sabonis the Rikishi. <laughs> Just didn't let him up down there. Um, well, I, I do wonder, like, where that... Other offense or whatever you need from the Warriors is going to come from here. I mean, you mentioned Wiggins up top. I I thought he played well defensively and played well for most of the game, but you did see fatigue start to set in toward the end there. I don't think he hit a shot in the fourth quarter was one for eight from three. And that's typically where your, your lack of legs is going to show. Well, and and we should say had a critical go ahead opportunity, wide open left corner three that, you would expect Andrew Wiggins to hit, you know, in last year's playoffs, and he just didn't have it right now. And I think it bears saying that it's not extreme to say that Andrew Wiggins being rusty and um, not playing for two months could could cost these guys the finals. No, this is not like that's not dramatic. Like he's he's that consequential to what they're doing, um, and I think we saw that yesterday, where it's just like we we don't have a guy for Fox. That's the Wiggins job at this mm-hmm. point. He's their perimeter stopper. Um whether it's a guard or a wing, um that's that's who he is for this team. So it's it's not hy- hyperbolic to say that th- the championship rides on how well Andrew Wiggins can perform. Yeah, it it feels like the Warriors need a warm-up in order to figure things out. Unfortunately, they're the sixth seed in in a hostile environment and they're not going to get that, which is really tough. So the Warriors have lost four game ones in the Steve Kerr era, 2016 West Finals versus the Thunder, 2019 NBA Finals against the Raptor, last year's Finals against the Celtics, this first round against the King. The common denominator, all of those series were tough as hell. The Warriors won two of those, lost one. So we'll see, but I, I think we're in for a wild ride here. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that just by the way the Kings guys showed up, right? Like to a man. To, to your Trey Lyles's and your Alex Lens, like they got big minutes out of out of who we, guys we thought were probably going to be marginal players in this series, but turned out to be really important. Yeah, I always believed in Trey Lyles. I, 
Me too, but he, you know, he never really There's developed levels to the, belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. he didn't Took a develop, while. He always had that jump shot, though. That, that was his, his strongest capabilities. It's just the other stuff like defense and, you know, um, that, never, <laughs> that never came around yeah. basketball. But, no, what I would say about this, man, watching this, that 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 just sort of caught my mind is that I think defenses tend to get better at what Golden State is doing as a series progresses. However, Golden State is figuring you out too, only at a much faster rate normally. And so it's hard for me to see the Kings shoring up more stuff um, throughout the course of this series than Golden State because that's just has never been their history. Uh, even in Boston, where, you know, they're literally about to go down 3-1 and they don't, and they dominate the rest of that series, right? And this is a and a Boston team that we acknowledge is much better than the Kings are, much more talented anyway, top to bottom. So, yeah, that's something to watch. But, man, these guys are believing in themselves. They've got home court, which obviously is going to play a huge role. This is, this is great stuff. All right, should we flip to uh, the next game on our list now? Uh, Knicks 101, Cavs 97 uh, was, uh, since you're reporting from the streets of, of New York here, uh, why don't you take us away? What's your takeaway from this one? Go New York, go New York, go! <laughs> <laughs> nah, man, listen, um, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit dismissive of the Knicks' prospects in this series. I just think that the Cavs are way better than them top to bottom, but I think I underestimated Brunson. Um, I kind of forgot that he cooked Donovan Mitchell's life in the postseason last year. I don't know how I, I like, forgot about that actual fact, but in this game, I, I was dismissive of the Knicks' ability to offensive rebound against this team, seeing as that they were the third best offensive rebound team in the NBA all season. That's how they got their offense to be pretty um, efficient, combining that with fast uh, transition slash fast break. And I'm like, well, teams figure that out in the playoffs. And I don't see the Knicks as somebody who, had, as a team that has a guy who can draw all of this attention and open up the offensive rebound lanes, but that's not what they were doing. They were just beating these guys up on the offensive boards. It's not because extra help was being sent to guys and so opening sprang loose. They just beat these dudes on the offensive boards, on the road, man. Um, they wanted this game really badly, and they, they were swarming like hell defensively, which I was really impressed by. Their half-court defense was excellent, all things considered. And so I think that can maintain itself. But to me, this is going to come down to whether if the Cavs figure out a way to box people out, get rebounds, get themselves in transition, um, and, you know allow themselves to play the Knicks in the half court most times and just end those possessions. It, game one, literally, to me, was a story of not rebounding. Yeah, Waz, we are in complete alignment. Like, this is a big, talented Cavs front court, and they got totally worked on the glass. 23-second chance points for the Knicks in this game. Mitchell Robinson and Josh Hart had five offensive rebounds each. And really, even beyond the numbers, like, those are objective facts. Playoff offensive rebounds hit different. Yeah. Like the harder you the harder you defend, the more you're putting into those possessions, 
the more they hurt when you lose those mm. opportunities. And in this game, honestly, both teams were playing hard as hell. Like they were getting after it. It wasn't an effort deficit, but they have to do better about boxing them out. Like the technique has to be better. They have to be there earlier. And some of that has to be like the perimeter has to be better contained. So then the help doesn't have to come over. And then you're abandoning rebounding position. And Mitchell Robinson's just like eating you alive from inside. But the problem is if you miss enough of those rebounds over time, like one game we saw in this, the Cavs, they were in it to the end. They fought hard. You do this enough times where you're giving up offensive rebounds every game and you're an inexperienced playoff team, I think that's really going to take a toll. Like I, I, I would expect if that happens, all of a sudden guys aren't putting extra efforts on defense. They're not getting out in transition. There can be a real tipping point psychologically with that kind of thing. And and here's the thing, too, about that. So like if, if the Lakers... The Lakers are playing Memphis today. If either one of those teams hits like 19 threes, the other team can be like, well, we couldn't have prepared for that. That's not something that they do on a regular basis. You know, whatever. We can move on with our lives. It's okay. No, you know the Knicks are trying to do this. You came into the game knowing that this is a Knicks strength. This is something that they lean on. And they still kicked your ass all up and down that damn offensive glass. So that's that's a little concerning to me. Yeah, I think that's the key thing for me as well. Like, this is kind of what the Knicks do. And you look at yeah. the matchup on paper and you see that, like, both teams are stacked in the front court and maybe it neutralizes. But then you don't factor in all of the heat sinking missiles that the Knicks have assembled on the offensive glass just around that. I mean, Josh Hart, I love looking at his stat line after a game because if you cover up uh, his name, you would think he would be like, Isaiah Hartenstein or something <laughs> just because he's always getting like 10 and 12 and, and like four offensive rebounds. And then Brunson was huge on that. The one key offensive rebound from Julius Randall, where he basically just shooed away Evan Mobley, like he was, a oh, nat, yeah. was incredible. He's doing all those little in-between things. I mean, we should probably talk about Mobley. I mean, at this company, you'll hear almost an exhaustive amount of praise for him. None rivals what Hubie Brown did after one, one play from Evan Mobley early in the game where he I mean, it was a sick a play, though. Fit. It was an awesome play. Love what did he be saying? He just, like, swooned, like, immediately. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like he was watching Prime Hakeem. Um, Justin, tell me, it, you, tell me you didn't. Tell me you didn't swoon on that dunk. It was an awesome play, and he had two or three to start that game. Unfortunately, it just seemed like Mobley was a little bit in over his head. Part of it is he probably needs like 20 pounds more in order to, to survive in a matchup like this. The other problem is like the Cavs are playing with four players at this point. They were trying to cycle through everyone for that fifth spot. I don't know if they found the right guy. And you could see on the margins that sort of make a difference, especially when Tibbs, a Tibbs team is going nine deep in a first round series. And the other team is the one with only four guys and they're riding them into the ground. It was crazy to watch. Yeah, the contrast of the bench was especially rough. I mean, this was a bad Karis Levert game, which does not help Cleveland's depth issues. But it got to the point where like the default defense on Jalen Brunson was Jetty Osman down the stretch. It was like, this is this is, this is is the best option we have available to us, given the way that some of our other role players have kind of played themselves off the floor for this game, at least. Like, if they're not going to be able to hit shots, they played themselves off the floor. I thought Osman did credibly under the circumstances, given that Brunson was just having an incredible second half already. You know, do what you can. Try to stay in front of him. Don't foul him. Like, be long. Try to contest those things. It didn't work. And I think game it's going to be game by game. Like It's going to be like, does Isaac Okoro have it tonight? We'll see. Does Dean Wade have it tonight? 
it's going to be a little bit of that, a little bit of improvising the rotation as you go versus, again, you, you scan across. I mean, this New York bench is really good. They're going to have the guy at least that I picked for six men of the year and Emmanuel quickly. He had an okay game, and yet their bench was still completely dominant. How long has the Cavs answer been, fuck it, Chetty Osman? <laughs> this has been like six years where it's like, I don't know what to do. Chetty Osman, see if you could do this. <laughs> Definitely longer than I think anyone should be comfortable with. I think Okoro had his moments where he looked de- decent on on defense and he pulled he actually pulled down a couple of like athletic seeming rebounds but you know somebody one of those guys if they want to be the guy that's in there has to set themselves apart somewhere somehow whether it be an ability to make an open shot for once or you know um helping on the glass helping on the perimeter uh and so I don't know. I've I've been a Dean Wade guy all year, um, but it's not like he was incredible yesterday either, right? Put that on a shirt. I was I've been a Dean Wade guy all year. <laughs> Just in the context of the fifth spot on the Cavs. <laughs> sure. We should probably mention that Donovan Mitchell was fucking incredible in this game. Uh, Thirty-eight points, eight assists, five rebounds, took thirty shots. Which I mean, they needed. They need everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I just like at a certain point, like I wonder if he can just win this series by himself, but it does feel like maybe he has to Rob. They need more. I mean, this is the thing. Like we're talking about, okay, you know, New York's offensive rebounding, you know, Brunson obviously had a really strong game. There were like five minute stretches of this game where I'm like, is Julius Randle the best basketball player on the planet? Like he was just (laughs) throwing guys out of his way. He looked amazing. And yet, they ended up with 101 points. Like that is a winnable total for the Cavs, right? Like you can outscore a team that needs all of these offensive rebounds to get to 101. You just need someone else to give you something offensive. Like Garland was okay, but the Mobley spot is where it hurt. And I thought Mobley kind of came around defensively. Like I thought he bothered Randall with his length over the course of this game, even giving up all that weight. But offensively, he missed a lot of really makeable shots. He got pushed out of his spot way too often. And yeah, they just need literally anything at all from the bench from someone who's not named Chetty Osman. So <laughs> if they can get any of those things, like this, again, this is a 4-5 series for a reason. This is very even, very like very well balanced. There's going to be some give and take. Donovan Mitchell's not going to have 38 every night, but I think the overall the Cleveland offensive output is going to have better days ahead. We'll just have to see kind of where it comes from night by night. Um, so unfortunately, Wise, I think you'll, you might be dealing with more Knicks fans in your messages for the foreseeable. Yeah, I, I I was somebody who thought this series could probably go five games. I thought the Cavs would would dominate them, but their struggles to score yesterday are, are eye-opening. I didn't think they'd have that big of a time, you know, generating um, some level of efficient offense. I think Garland has to be more uh, aggressive, uh, not just in his shot, but trying to get contact down low, uh, drawing fouls at the cup. And yeah, honestly, when when Mobley is playing against smaller guys or shoot, guys that are the same size as him, but he's two feet from the basket, he needs to be able to convert. He needs to be able to stay on his square longer. I know I realize that he's the second coming of Kevin Garnett, um, and eventually, uh, allegedly, he's going to get there. But today, in this Knicks series, he's going to have to exploit these matchups. Um, and his, you know, he, again, they got to attack the glass as well because Donovan Mitchell 
is going to draw extra help when he attacks the basket. Same for Garland. And that's going to leave opportunities on the offensive glass. So they need them too need to um, be attacking uh, that way. And yeah, Mobley has to just be better. Yeah, we are like a year, maybe year and a half away from the inevitable Evan Mobley, his teammates got on him because he's not taking enough shots. Like he has that typical passive superstar player arc where it's like he is deferential by nature and it's a very mm -hmm. good thing. He's an awesome player to play with, it seems like. But like he's going to need someone to get on his ass to, to do more and to be more aggressive. And it just doesn't seem like he has that naturally in him. And it's going to come. I just don't know if it's going to come in time to help them this postseason. He's got that Marcus all in him is what you're saying. Mm, yeah. He's him, just the other <laughs> him. Yeah. All right. Celtics 112, Hawks 99. My takeaway from this one is, you know how on the rewatchables, they have that category. It's like, what's the scene where you can go and take a pee break? Uh, I, I think that this is this, that this, this is the for series. the NBA playoffs. Yeah. I mean, we could... We could talk about how like the Celtics let up late and let the Hawks back in it, sort of. But this they one were up by be... thirty-two points in the third <laughs> quarter. I'm sorry, the Hawks yeah. were god awful yesterday. It was embarrassing to watch, man. Some of these layup, like th these guys are getting layups barely contested at the rim, and I'm just like, yo. This is the playoffs, guys. Like, if if it's one thing any NBA team should be able to do is not give up uncontested layups. Layups. Man, like, we're talking about Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. These are all-star, all-NBA guys, MVP candidate guys. Getting that amount of respect from a defense that they could just get layups. It's embarrassing. That was... That was an embarrassing effort, man. Um, that's an indictment of that group that they could come out in game one of a playoff ser series and get and, and play with that, you know, level of defensive effort, man. That was that was just bad to watch, honestly. Yeah, the spacing discrepancy was pretty stark, right? You have Boston's offense dragging Clint Capella outside, dragging everybody outside to the, your point was like Jalen Brown, Jason did getting layups, getting back cuts for for guys like easy, easy opportunities with zero rim protection whatsoever. And then you flash to the other side of the ball and Atlanta shooting five of 29 from three, a team that has not shot well all season, doesn't have enough shooting, doesn't have enough spacing, doesn't have that capacity to have that kind of flow into their offense, that kind of space. But honestly, I, I hope people did not take the pee break on this game, at least for the first quarter of this game, because I thought the way Boston came out the like we are not fucking around energy yeah. that Boston brought to this game was telling because honestly, the awful thing about losing in the NBA finals beyond just like, you know, losing in the NBA finals, which sounds like it sucks. Uh, <laughs> you don't really have a chance to prove anything until you can get another crack at the playoffs. Yeah, It's just been we're just waiting. We're just going through the motions. We're going to play kind of hard through the regular season. And as a result of that, like a lot of teams don't make it back. Guys drop off. Guys get hurt. Things change. The vibe shifts or they just lose like whatever it is that kind of gave them that drive and that fire in the first place. This wasn't the NBA finals, but this was a test for the Celtics. Like, do they have that gear that got them through last season's playoffs? And with the dominant open and the 45 to 25 second quarter, I'm thinking they do, you know, like this was a, this was a pretty awesome performance in the first half from them. Well, I would say the two major distinctions, maybe from the playoffs, but also at times during this regular season, one, Rob Williams played. 
And anytime he plays, he seems like he completely changes the face of this team. They just play with just more like, like oomph than they, they typically do. He really completes them in a way that I think uh, certain players typically do. And then Derek White, who was kind of a non-factor most of last postseason feels like he is an essential part of this team. Like, to the point where I, I don't know how you sit him in, in crunch time lineups. And if you want to go big, they played a little bit with, with Rob and, and Al in the front court. Like, I don't know. Would you go with white at, as the fifth player in there instead of smart at times at white has, has essentially become essential, uh, which I think last postseason we would say he was more, you know, give or take whatever game he was in. There was a bunch of times last postseason where they needed a third guy um, to be able to try to puncture the defense uh, in times when uh, Tatum might have been sitting or Brown was sitting, or maybe they just didn't have it at the moment because of defensive matchups, et cetera. They needed a third guy that could do it. And there were times where Derek White looked like that guy, but too often he wasn't. Uh, but now, after a year, he just feels so much more confident, man, in everything, in his drives. And he will not hesitate to fire that thing, no matter where he's at at the court, when he gets a pass um, from one of those two guys. So, yeah, it was dope to see him yesterday be that person, be him. <laughs> we're, we're just racking up the hymns. Um <laughs> I do love, too, like the synergy defensively between Derek White on ball, Marcus Smart off ball, mm. like absolute great on ball stopper plus this total chaos creator. I think I think Marcus Smart, he can be very good on ball, but he got a little miscast in his defensive player of the year run last year. It's like, oh, this is the guy you want on Steph Curry. It is not. <laughs> he He's the guy the you want like mucking things up. BSPR campaign. Let's be real. He was not the best defensive player in the NBA last year. He was not. He was also certainly not this year, but he's still very good and he can still do a lot of great things in terms of just like rotation, blowing up plays, scrapping things out from the weak side or cheating off of guys. He's so good at that. And so like, I love when those two guys are on the court together as much as possible, even though, you know, some nights offensively, that's not going to be great. But I think you can live with that on balance, especially in these guard dependent matchups, like when you have Young and Murray out there. Yeah. Also nice to see Jalen take the reins when uh, the Hawks, who just don't have the perimeter defense to guard both him and Tatum, uh, just went off 29 points. Uh, he has that hand laceration, and apparently it split open during this game, which is something, I guess, to, to track going into the next series. But um, the, f- the fact that he still shot well and scored as effectively as he did, I think, is, is pretty heartening. Um, just quickly on the other side of this, uh, do we think Quinn Snyder likes Trey Young? <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't know if it's as contentious as it has been with, with Trey and some of his past coaches already, but it just feels like Quinn is already kind of sick of what Young does. And to the point where, like, seemed like they hit a little bit of a flow late in the game when Young was off the court. What, what are you like? What are you seeing? Is it like a body language thing? What's happening there? I don't know. Snyder has a very weird vibe going on. It almost feels like he's like on a staycation with this team. He has like a little bit of a stubble. Like he was wearing just a regular ass <laughs> polo the other day without even a team logo on it. It just feels like maybe like this is his warm up in order to get really back into the flow of things. But it, it just feels like maybe he has the say so on this team as has been reported. And he's maybe just wearing his heart on his sleeve a little bit more. And in this case, I, I think it's just kind of an ambivalence toward like some of the the chaotic stuff that that Young tends to bring to the court. So so here's the funny thing that you would say he has a vacation vibe. He did an interview with um 
David Aldridge, my, my former colleague at The Athletic. And in that interview, he mentioned that he was like in South America. I think he was in like Peru or so, something. <laughs> he was like gone. He's like, yeah, me and my wife really love it there, whatever. And then I got the call to come take this interview. Basically letting it be known, like, I was good. I was living a great <laughs> life. I was straight. These people called me because they really wanted me up in here. So there's a reason why I took this job. Like, obviously, they've made a huge level of commitment to that coach. And so I think that's what you're reading there is that he has a feeling that, like, if he doesn't like how this dude gets down, Trey Young, he can do something about it. Um, it, it feels like he has that influence. And, and that's what I think you're picking, the vibes that I think you're picking up on. I mean, you know what that is, Waz? That's that's some negotiating leverage right there. That's give me that bag or I'm not leaving my plate of Lomo Saltado down here. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just picturing Quinn Snyder now, like James Bond, like shirt off, jeans on in bed, <laughs> his, his, his hands behind his head, just like going into town on his motorbike every day. What a um, life. I know, and now here he is just getting absolutely blasted in the first round. He's rocking of, the fedora. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what the Celtics made of this game. We are now just like yeah. writing Quinn Snyder fan fiction. No, they, they because, completely blew these, no. these dudes' doors off. It was, it, was, it was a shellacking, honestly. Do we think they have the capacity to be better one-on-one defensively? Because I'm looking at DeAndre Hunter. I'm looking at DeJounte Murray, a formerly excellent defensive player. I'm looking up and down this roster. I'm like, who is stopping the guy in front of them right now? And I don't feel very confident about almost anyone on Atlanta's roster. DeJounte Murray, he's a great point of attack. Like, he can give Derek White hell. He can give uh, Marcus Is he, Smart. though? He's not doing it right now. But that's, in the past, he's had I know that in ability the past. to do that. I've, I've seen it with my own two eyes where, you know, he's guarding Lou Williams and Lou Williams is straight up like getting off of the ball. Like, I don't even want to dribble right now because this dude is guarding me. Like, I've seen him do that in the past, but he's too small to do that against Tatum and Brown. He doesn't have the heft to deal with the, that that size of guy. And Hunter, you know, I, I hate to say it, they traded my man the Red Rifle um, in, 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 in favor of keeping this guy and paying him way more uh, based off this idea that he could be some one-on-one um, boon and that he could guard the Tatum and Brown types. And it just hasn't panned out. Five three-pointers made from a team with all of this wing depth. You know, I mean, they won't shoot that poorly again, but like when you play like the Miami Heat without the defense, I, I don't think it's going to work, especially against a team that's just going to pick you apart like the Celtics. <laughs> What is the Miami Heat without the defense? Like, what even... I, I, I can't even comprehend what that looks like, but I guess we just saw it. Just pig slop, I guess. It's yeah. just like mud wrestling. Um, You're just in the mud. Yeah. Uh, last game, Sixers 121, Nets 101. Um, just an absolute masterclass from the Sixers. Yeah. I have r- r- written down a showcase of Philly sophistication. Um, I loved what the Nets were trying. They tried to leverage all of that athleticism uh, and spunk uh, on the defensive end. They were sending doubles early and often. They were trying to create chaos. Unfortunately, Embiid has just gotten so good at moving the ball off of double teams. And James Harden, like this is why you have James Harden, why you have a bunch of three-point shooters around him. Just It was like operation out there, just watching him just pick apart this defense slowly and then often. Um, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this all season, Rob, just like all the answers that the Sixers seem to have that they haven't before just seems like this team is built so solidly that this wasn't much of, uh, of a 
uh, like an obstacle for them as it has been potentially in the past. Yeah, to the point where you can take, I mean, honestly, what's probably going to be Brooklyn's like best case offensive game in this series. Like they shot the hell out of the ball. Mikhail Bridges was awesome. And they didn't have a shot. Like they, they just were not even close for for good portions of this game. And I do think it was the execution that you said that you mentioned, Justin, just like Joel Embiid versus the double team. That to me is the takeaway. The idea that it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough. And right now, Joel is at like 80% return rate if you double him, right? Like you're going to get a good look, a good enough look for Joel because he can he can shoot the hell right over the top of some guys and still hit those. There's going to be some one-off plays where he throws the ball into the stands or just things aren't coordinated the way they should be. Or he looks a little out of rhythm. Like there were some shots where they did kind of take him off balance a little bit. But as long as you zoom out and keep everything in perspective, Sixers scored 119 points for 100 possessions with Joel on the floor in this game. They're going to win almost every game if they perform at that level. So we'll we'll see how they do the rest of this series. It's a great first step in terms of dealing with some of that chaos that teams like the Nets can throw at you. We'll see how Brooklyn's strategy evolves. And I think more importantly, how that looks against later, more capable opponents. Yeah, this strategy is going to evolve into more pounding, getting destroyed. Uh, as much as I love <laughs> Claxton, I think he's one of literally one of the five most underrated guys in our league right now. I really do think he's an underappreciated player. This is a nightmarish matchup for him. He like the idea, the reason that they have to come with this sort of gimmicky defense in the first place is. There is, they don't have any illusions that he can deal with Joel in the one-on-one for even two seconds, right? And so they have to devise this doubling scheme, trying to front Joel, trying to do these other things. It's just, they they don't have the bodies to deal with what Joel brings to the table. He's just going to overwhelm them. Um, And to me, that 13 assist number by James Harden is everything. Right. If you tell me the Sixers get 13 assists out of James Harden on a given night, they're winning. That means, you know, they're, you, you're, you're probably putting two on the ball and on his pick and rolls. And he's doing what Harden does best, which is find people. He's, he's one of the finest, probably the three best passers in the NBA right now. And so once Harden is rolling that way, as far as seeing the floor and a team goes into it, knowing they can't even attempt to do a conventional defense with Joel. Like, when they play Boston, Boston's going to be like, Tom Lord's not going to be incredible, but they're going to be like, all right, let's try Tom Lord. Let's try Big Al. Let's try to guard this guy in conventional ways and get creative with our double teams when we send the Tatums and the Browns or even uh, the Smarts at him at different angles, switch it up, switch up his looks. That's how Joel has gotten tripped up in the past. Is he doesn't know where the double is coming from or it comes at an awkward timing and he's throwing the ball away. The Nets can't even pretend like they they have to come into it showing their cards automatically. And yeah, they just got sliced and diced. This is I don't see how any of this changed. Yeah, that that Paul Reed, Justin, I see you got that in the notes. Where this dude <laughs> is doing God sham God, skip to my Lou handles and into layups. Yeah, they in just the paint. having fun with this team. In yeah. the paint. Yeah, that was embarrassing for the Nets. Uh if, so if you're if you're getting roasted in the Paul Reed minutes. You're you don't have a shot. Like I, I'm sorry, you just don't. And like I I do feel for Nick Claxton. I do feel for the Nets. Like he's playing his ass off. He's like trying to bust ass down court. They kept trying to throw him lobs because they were trying to beat Joel down the floor. He just looked exhausted. Understandably, like that is what playing against Joel Embiid is. 
Well, so what do you do if you're, you're the Nets? You got picked apart. It wasn't just Harden. 32 assists on 42 made field goals. This was an absolute just dicing up. Um, do you keep sending the doubles because that's what you do and you don't really have anyone of, of great heft left on your bench? You traded them all away, unfortunately. Um, or do you try to play them straight up and do something different here? There's no straight up if you're this big of an underdog, I don't think. I think the move is radical departure from game to game and as much variation as you can afford from quarter to quarter. Like, mm-hmm. if you can throw completely different looks at Joel at every possible opportunity, that's what you should do. Because this looked like a Sixers team, to to our larger point about their execution, that knew what they were walking into. That knew, we're going up against Nick Claxton, we're going up against like a bunch of long wings, they're probably going to try to double us. The question is when? Is it going to be on the dribble? Is it going to be on the catch? What is the move going to be? And as soon as they sussed that out, it was it was basically curtains at that point. And so yeah. the more you can change those things up, the better off you're going to be. Like play even smaller if you have to. Like again, the Claxton minutes, what is ultimately the difference between Nick Claxton being one of two defenders on the ball versus Dorian Finney-Smith? In this matchup, I don't think it's a dramatic difference. Maybe on the maybe on the glass, you're giving something up. Maybe in some other ways, like as a finisher, you're you're going more outside than inside offensively. But I think you have to get radical. I think you have to get radical as often and as dramatically as possible. So on the other side of this, Mikael Bridges did have 30 points and five rebounds in his playoff debut. Um, I, for one, was kind of expecting a little bit of a come down from the Bridges supernova offensive ex- uh, experiment going on here. I thought it might have been late season. He's just the guy on a team without as many options as a lot of other NBA teams. I mean, when you look around, like Herb Jones has 35. Uh, you wonder, like, if given the opportunity, can a lot of guys fill that role? But it feels like this version of Bridges is legit. Rob, and I, I, I'm starting to wonder, like, what is the ceiling for this guy? Because like a couple weeks, months ago, he was the three and D guy playing off of Chris Paul and Devin Booker kickouts. And now he's a guy who looks like one of the best scorers in the NBA. Yeah. And not just because he did it over a sustained stretch of the regular season, but this is kind of the first checkpoint for him is he's number one on the scouting report going into the series. The Sixers know at this point what he can do, how he plays, what he's bringing to the table. He can be a point of emphasis and he can still get 30. That's a huge development for him in his career. And honestly, something I did not see earlier this season in Phoenix for him. Like, I thought he had shown a lot of improvement already. And I didn't think he had this jump within the same year. So the fact that he's doing this against a defense as high quality as the Sixers, it's incredible. Like, I mean, I think we'll have to see kind of, again, the test of this stuff is always going to be longevity. It's always going to be year over year. It's always going to be what can you keep adding to your game. But he's he's acing every test as far as being the guy on one of these teams. Yeah, I don't want to take any anything away from the guy. It's a playoff game, right? Um, I wonder if the Sixers treated stopping him um, as the obstacle to them winning or not winning, right? I think it's different when a team is like, if we don't stop this guy, we cannot win. I don't know that they approach this game in that way. Uh, So I'll just say that. But whatever, man, the stuff that's in front of him, he is conquering. And and he deserves the credit for that, Uh, especially what he's doing off of the dribble. Like, that's just not that's just not something I thought was in his game. This this idea that he would set up on a face up and and just take people starting his dribbles from the three point line. That's just crazy. To me, um, against a set defense at that, yeah. not, you know, a scrambling defense where he's attacking a closeout. Nah, he's doing this against just a straight up set half court defense. That's 
impressive stuff. We'll see how far he can take it, though. Yep. All right, let's uh, let's wrap it there. Uh, thank you to Isaiah Blakely on production. Thank you to Ben Cruz for sitting in here. Uh, next week on Wednesday, we have a suggestion box, so keep sending in those questions, suggestionboxgc at gmail.com. But until then, enjoy the games on Sunday. See you next time.